When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Ash Bennington. Welcome to Building Blocks, a podcast about people's journey into the Bitcoin, blockchain, and digital asset space. Join me as we seek to get to the bottom of what's really happening. Ryan, welcome to Building Blocks. Thanks, Ash. Great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. You've been on Real Vision multiple times. It's great to have you back to hear a little bit more about your journey into the space. So tell us a little bit about your life before you discovered crypto. Well, I, Ash, I have always been interested in computers. I think that's something we hear a lot in the space. Yeah. And like so many who wound up studying computer science and, and programming for a living, I first was interested in video games. Yeah. So as, as a young kid, I started playing video games and I was, I had a, a good fortune that my Parents uh, encouraged me to play, you know, quiz games and, you know, you know not, not just Doom and Duke Nukem, but, but also some of the, the thinking video games that you'll find on the shelf there. And that kind of spiraled into an early interest in programming. And ultimately, uh, I was very fortunate to uh, get into uh, Waterloo University, uh, a very good Canadian university. Uh, and my whole life changed then. It was sort of a, a level of rigor and... Uh, intense knowledge and wonderful friendships that, you know, I think defines many folks' college experience. And for me, it was transformative. And uh, Waterloo's a special school because uh, while you're doing an undergrad, most undergraduates in technical uh, programs will do what's called the co-op program. That's the Canadian word for intern program. And uh, Waterloo's co-op program is unusual in that in your undergraduate degree, you will actually do two full years of work experience spread across six different co-op terms, four months each term. And what, what you do is for about half the time you're at university, you spend 50% of your time working. So uh, for me, I had an initial eight months at school, two terms, and then after that initial eight months, I did four months of work, four months of school on off, uh, 12 months a year, no, no summer vacation uh, for the next uh, four years. And uh, with my co-op terms, I started in video games uh, at a game developer, a AAA game developer, really kind of cut my teeth on my ability to navigate large code bases and and you know, get dig into a piece of software and figure out what's going on, and and also just sort of produce something that my superiors had some level of satisfaction for. I think looking back, you realize that as an intern, often they were humoring you, <laughs> but uh, they were formative experiences. And after uh, video game development, uh, well, actually, my my time in video game development ended uh, at at a very interesting fork in the road that really defined my career, which is that. Uh, as a student who had about a year and a half of school left, I was offered two different 
excellent co-op jobs. I was sort of very fortunate. I had a very strong interviewing uh, term, that term. And I was offered, one, do you want to go work on uh, with BioWare on Mass Effect 2? Now, BioWare is not as... Uh, it's, it's a video game company that's perhaps not as uh, uh, beloved or famous as they were back then. But like 10 years ago, BioWare was like... Uh, uh, one of the top game companies in the world. And Mass Effect was a very big game. And Mass Effect number two, the sequel, uh, was, you know, highly anticipated. And so the opportunity to go work on this game uh, would have really solidified my career in the game industry. And then I could have done whatever I wanted from there. However, uh, I got an offer to work at Amazon.com, a little bookstore. Uh, back then, this was about 2008, 2009, Amazon had been uh, unbeknownst to me as an incoming intern, Amazon had been about five years down the pipe of converting to a web services model, which was sort of the precursor for their famous AWS cloud technology that's taken the world by storm. Right. And uh, Amazon really, uh, uh, what Waterloo did for my theoretical education, Amazon really did for my practical education, where uh, when I showed up at Amazon, I had no idea what to expect. Uh, everybody still thought it was a bookstore and I was just absolutely blown away. These were some of the smartest, most well-organized, most ambitious, most broadly thinking folks who had some of the best internal tools and training, uh, beyond, beyond even my conception. Like I could not have imagined the level of support, uh, that I got going into Amazon. And, uh, I really cut my teeth at Amazon and I learned, I learned project management, I, uh, I, I, w I became a trained scrum master at Amazon. Um, a lot of folks may yeah. be familiar with the, uh, the scrum agile methodology. By the way, for those who don't know, who don't have software development backgrounds, this is a project management methodology uh, for developing software. I actually, Ryan, had a bit of a project management background myself. Uh, and I think it was something that gave me a tremendous amount of understanding of the way that the process behind software works. And it gives you a sense of actually, I think in many ways, how things get built. Absolutely. Software is uh, a bit like making any other sausage. Uh, you need a plan, you need to understand how that plan's gonna move forward. And uh, uh, if you if you project manager in software, out of software, a lot of it's very similar, you know, kind of human problems, scheduling problems, c c questions of, what are we actually working on? You know, we, we think we're working on something, but what are we actually working on? And I found that at Amazon, they just had great answers to these questions. And uh, I ended up being at Amazon for uh, just under two years total, first as an intern, uh, and then, oh, pardon me, about two and a half years total, first as an intern and later as a full-time employee. I was one of the first two full-time employees uh, with Amazon in Ontario. I think now those Toronto offices have like hundreds of people across probably dozens of teams, but uh, I was very fortunate to be one of the very first employees uh, for software engineering in Canada. We were actually so early that they co-located our office in the uh, fulfillment center, the Amazon warehouse. So we had a software office above the warehouse, which was a very uh, unique and uh, for us a valuable experience because not coincidentally, we were uh, the uh, Amazon's warehouse software group that I had joined right. uh, out of college. But it wasn't quite out of college that I joined Amazon. Uh, I actually uh, did a startup before then in uh, advertising intelligence, 
We built some software to scrape the advertisements on the web and try to learn who was putting what ads where and what sizes of ads they were using. And uh, back then, a lot of the internet ad business was still uh, powered by uh, direct buys of ad placements into various properties, you know, through intermediaries. It wasn't so much YouTube and Facebook dominating the ad scene using their proprietary platforms. Uh, although Google AdSense was pretty big back then, but uh, for for us, uh, this startup was pretty important. It kind of taught me about uh, some of the building blocks of what it takes to build something from scratch and to work with somebody. Mm. And uh, uh, that was very, very helpful later in my career when, you know, over the next 10 years or so, I started with this this startup interest, this computer science and economics interest. Right. And I sort of spun that into a career at multiple small companies. Uh, and then I, uh, uh, I was, again, very fortunate to land a role at a, a company in Manhattan, uh, Bread Finance. So uh, my wife and I, Canadian family, we went to the same college town, different schools in the same college town. And she'd actually been transferred down to uh, Florida first and later Connecticut. And so we wound up, I wound up commuting into Manhattan on the train, you know, commuter train, you're, you're tucked in, three-hour commute. I've been on those trains. Oh yeah, it's 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 tough, you know. Those who do that, you got to salute them. They're doing it for their families and 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 for their careers. And yeah, they sure are. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or twenty-four-seven in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's so interesting, Ryan. Uh, you know, for me, one of the interesting things about, about crypto is that, you know, your story is very much a story about software development. Um, other conversations I have, um, the people we talk to, uh, their story may be very much about financial services. Others uh, very much about um, you know business. Uh, others still uh, about philosophy and economics. Uh, so it is such an interesting sort of intersection point where all of these big kind of theoretical constructs intersect. And it's so fascinating to hear your story where you have this very sort of traditional software development background, and then you start to get involved uh, in things uh, like finance and financial services, how those intersections happen. As you talk about this background, I'm curious, what was the moment where you went down the crypto rabbit hole? Was there a sort of a specific thing that you can remember in your head where you thought, oh man, this stuff is really cool. And from a software development perspective, this is the most interesting thing happening right now. Oh yeah. So I, I, in university, in 2010, we mined Bitcoin in the school computer labs, which is something you could do back then. There were no ASICs. And, and uh, I, I had the advantage of always knowing that crypto wasn't a scam because having been in computer science school when Bitcoin was launched, we were familiar with Bitcoin's novelty. Uh, but we didn't save those wallets and I don't have Bitcoin Genesis coins. And in the coming years, uh, I had the advantage of being able to watch crypto from afar and get a sense that there was something real here. And then where I really fell down the rabbit hole was at that company in Manhattan where I met uh, two two colleagues at work who uh, uh, have become uh, very important crypto buddies of mine over the years. And then, and then actually a third 
uh, from the same company uh, sort of joined a little bit later. And so uh, uh, me and these two colleagues, these two colleagues and, and I just, uh, uh, we would just talk crypto nonstop. And that's really where I fell down the rabbit hole. It's like we're, we're, we're working on our day jobs and then between work items and after work, we just can't stop talking about how, how this technology is going to take over the world. And to your point, Ash, about it being multidisciplinary, that was really where I realized that crypto is not just one thing. Right. It's not just technical, political, you know, philosophical. Uh, it's not just about economics and and user experience and and you know social justice and equality, like a- access to financial services. It's kind of all these things. And I've always been a guy who hasn't wanted to stay in his swim lane and and yeah. thrives when I can see the whole picture. Yeah. And crypto just facilitates that. And so I really fell down the rabbit hole at this company in Manhattan, you know, about about four years ago. What was it specifically that caught your attention that made you feel that this was something that was going to play a significant role in all of our futures? It's actually about five and a half years ago. And uh, when Vitalik first announced Ethereum, I was watching on the internet, but I didn't participate in the crowd sale. I had been recently burned by some crypto, a bad crypto investment. And, you know, back then I didn't know how to value crypto tokens. I didn't know what, what made one crypto token different from the other. And I, I was recently burned. And so I passed on Ethereum, the crowd sale. Uh, but when Vitalik announced Ethereum, he just said, guys, folks, we're, we're going to, we're going to take the ID of the blockchain and we're going to glue a computer to it. And you're going to be able to make applications. And being a creative guy with not just a software background, but a video game background. And I think video game developers are famously not just creative, but they like to take the technology to its limits. Uh, you know, I think a lot of us have seen those videos on YouTube where such and such a person has done something to this old video game or they're, you know, they, they've taken the Doom video game and they're running it on a toaster or... So they, I think the, the seeing just the idea that you could run any program on a blockchain really, uh, really for me unlocked this kind of world of potential, but I didn't see a lot of it back then. And I think in, in the coming years, especially in like deep conversations with these guys I met at that, at that company, we just realized, I think, I think ahead of the curve that this thing was going to touch everything. It was going to be a better distribution platform for the US dollar was a big one, but also it was just going to unlock a whole new world of culture and possibility. So uh, I, I think for us, by having an open mind from the start, we've sort of gradually discovered all these new uh, areas of promise. So it, it really, uh, uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's necessarily been like a light switch where we all of a sudden realized that now here's all the things you can do. But I think by having an open mind, it's really come to us uh, uh, gradually over the years. Yeah, for someone with a computer science background who is already interested in Bitcoin, you can see how it would be really compelling uh, to hear this idea of, hey, you know that Bitcoin thing, we're going to glue a Turing complete computer onto it uh, and figure out what we can do with it. Really, obviously, something that's very interesting uh, and a very exciting time uh, in the space. So talk to us a little bit about your transition to investor. Many Real Vision viewers will know you uh, on Real Vision uh, from the context of investing. How did you begin to make this decision to go from 
developer, builder on the one hand to investor on the other? That's such a great question, Ash. And I think that my journey may resonate with other folks who spent the early part of their career building up some level of wealth. And then one day it kind of clicks for you that, hey, I can invest this. I don't just have to stick it in Vanguard. I have opinions. I've learned stuff. I can take those learnings and try to grow my wealth even faster. And that's what happened to me. I, uh, I, I was again at this very formative role in Manhattan about uh, five and a half years ago. And at the time, I didn't think of myself as an investor. I thought of myself right. as a software engineer, thought of myself as someone who kind of thought this technology was cool. But I did not seriously consider that intervening in the deployment of my capital could dramatically improve my circumstances. I didn't seriously consider investing. I just thought, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll stick it in the bank. I'll stick it in Vanguard. I'm done. Back, back to work. Back to coding. Hmm. And... Uh, I, I credit I credit really one of these uh, one of these two guys that has just been this these incredible formative valuable and ongoing relationships in my crypto journey and, and my personal life is he sort of sat me down one day and uh, it was right around the time the Ethereum Enterprise Alliance was first announced this was early 2017 right before the uh, kind of first very significant bull run. And, uh, you know, I, I had awareness of Ethereum, but I still looked at it kind of like you might look at like a fish bowl, you know, a fish tank. Maybe you have this favorite restaurant, you know, you go there and you go there twice a week and they have this incredible tropical fish tank and you're, you know, oh, I like that fish tank. You know, you learn about it, you learn the fish's names, but you don't, it's not your fish tank. It, you know, you, you're not a fish tank guy. And then he sort of sat me down and he said like, you love this stuff. You're always talking about it. You're starting to understand it to a greater degree. We think it's going to change the world. Why aren't you Why aren't you involved financially? And I'm not sure. I don't recall what he said to me that really, you know, specifically when that lightning bolt went off in my mind. But something happened. And all of a sudden, I was all in. And I took sort of all the free cash flow I had available, which at the time was not a lot. And I shoveled it into Ethereum. And uh, that was really the time when I started thinking to myself, I can buy things that I think will do better than the market, hmm. and I can have patience while I wait for the thesis that I've spent time studying and understanding to play out over the years. Right. Uh, I had no idea Ethereum would do so well that year. Uh, it's certainly important to say that that being my first crypto cycle, I, uh, I suffered from kind of that first cycle curse that so many people go through. I think that a lot of people are suffering with now and my, my heart goes out to them. Just that you don't, you don't take money off the table in your first cycle. You're, you're just sort of so excited to watch your net worth grow on paper and you've, you've made a lot of money and you feel like there's a lot more to come and you know there's a lot of growth ahead. But perhaps you're not yet aware of sort of the fundamentally cyclic nature of these confidence-based assets, especially in these early days when they don't have a lot of reliable cash flow revenue from institutional customers yet. You know, someday governments will pay Ethereum millions, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars a year to run a whole lot of economic activity. But we're like years away from that. And right now the, the value of Ethereum is unfortunately what people think it is from day to day. It's just, it's... It's just a confidence game. Do you think the value should be this? That doesn't mean it lacks intrinsic value. 
meaning that there's not really the cash flow to value it that you would a, a traditional investment. I mean, look, it's it's interesting. It, obviously, talking uh, predictions are very difficult to make, especially about the future. Uh, clearly, remains to be seen what the adoption will be. Obviously, a major shift coming uh, here uh, with the merge. Uh, but I'm really curious about this idea. There are many technologists, folks who were involved early in Ethereum, who did well financially because they were uh, playing around in the space uh, and they had taken uh, a position in Ethereum. But what I'm curious about is that mental shift, because it's a big one from technologist and builder to investor. You know, you didn't have a sort of MBA in finance. You were someone who came at this from the perspective of academic training, professional training in computer science. When did you make that mental shift in your head and think, yeah, I'm an investor now. I think about this technology primarily as an investor and not as a developer or a builder? Right, that's a great question, Ash. And while I invested in early 2018 and continued making investments for years, I'm not sure I was an investor then. I think I was still a software engineer who got involved in investing. And it was a couple of years later, I, I had done a short, uh, a short sort of tour of duty at a popular DeFi protocol and when I left, I was in a situation where I had enough money in the markets uh, and enough sort of cash on hand that I didn't necessarily have to get a job right away. Uh, I wasn't I like I, I wasn't I wasn't a wealthy person then. I was I was sort of in the trenches, and what what really happened was I realized that I had to know. I just I had to know. I had to. I had to know personally and intimately why this stuff was going to do well, what the competitive landscape was, what's coming down the pipe, what new products, new new entrants, new technologies. I, I just had to know. And uh, I, I continued reading ferociously. And my sort of crypto, crypto buddies and I, my crypto business partners and I, uh, had you know very advanced conversations that that I think I think we understood things like years before a lot of folks in the space, and uh, like we just we just had to know we we put so much of our money in in Ethereum you know 95 percent plus net worth we just to be able to sleep at night and to satisfy our own curiosity we had to understand why this was a good decision. And after we believed it was a good decision, we had this insatiable appetite to know it was a good decision tomorrow and next week. And I think just going through that meat grinder of constantly studying to understand why my portfolio was rational and going to do well, mm. that really kind of forged me into an investor. Yeah. There's so much to talk about here. Uh, unfortunately, we only have about 30 minutes to do it uh, on this podcast. We're going to obviously have to bring you back on Real Vision uh, to talk about this in more detail on the platform, particularly uh, some of the points that you made uh, in the context of the future of Ethereum. This is obviously something that's especially important as we record here in June of 2022 uh, with the merge just around the corner. But I want to ask you a little bit about what I call this sort of the core paradox of the space. So, you know, you mentioned this, this vision of the future where uh, Ethereum is uh, generating tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in revenue uh, from 
governments uh, and other entities. Obviously, uh, that's a that's a future state. There's some risk involved. Uh, in fact, there's considerable risk involved in getting there uh, because this is the adoption of a new technology. Uh, and I want people to understand uh, that this is by no means a fait accompli. It's by no means a certainty how we get there. Uh, and if we get there, whether it's Ethereum or another technology, uh, something that's very much uh, an open question right now as we have this conversation. I'm curious how you think about this paradox of risk. Risk is something that I've been thinking about a lot. Obviously, crypto markets are uh, in a negative downturn cycle right now. We've been hearing the phrase crypto winter bandied about uh, a great deal more than usual here in June of 2022 based on the price action we've seen. For me, the, the really core paradox is when you look at this technology, people like you uh, who have been working in it uh, in the mines, so to speak, uh, for many years now, it's very clear that there's something in this uh, dis- in these distributed networks, in these decentralized networks, that's incredibly and profoundly powerful. It feels, to me at least, like an extension of Web 1.0, Web 2.0, a very natural progression toward these decentralized technologies playing an ever greater role in every aspect of our lives, finance, commerce, entertainment, social connection, all of these potential opportunities here. And yet, these are tremendously highly volatile, highly speculative investments. As an investor, how do you think about that core paradox, the idea that it's very clear that this technology is going to be something that plays an increasingly larger role in our lives, and yet the actual pricing, the actual cash flows, the actual market valuations of this, extremely, extremely volatile, extremely, extremely high risk, how do you reconcile those sort of two very almost opposite worldviews? I think that the challenge with reconciling those opposite worldviews is that on the one hand, you have this promising technology. On the other hand, we have intense volatility with the undertone of, is this working at all? Is this valuable at all? And I think for us, being thesis-driven investors has helped to cut through that paradox and uh, but what's the thesis? Is it are we just Ethereum maximalists? No, we're not. We really believe in two theses. We have kind of the public chain thesis and the uh, credible neutrality thesis. Unpack both of those for us. Great. So the uh, a, a public chain is just a new kind of open or semi-open computing platform where somebody runs this chain and it doesn't have to be decentralized. You could have Amazon running a chain and they could say, this is the Amazon public Ethereum chain. Uh, Or you could have Amazon run the chain and they could say, this is an Amazon Ethereum chain, but it's private, you know, private blockchains, private corporate blockchains were a really big thing a few years ago. And I think ultimately what we've seen is that part of what makes this technology inherently useful is that it it's public in nature because being public is is a particular way to encourage permissionless innovation the ability for this technology to foster permissionless innovation is a is a huge part of its value prop but let me back up here when a when you have a public chain it just means that it's a little bit like a public restaurant or a public food court anyone can sort of come and do their business and potentially get some value and leave. And you can have a public chain that's not decentralized. 
you know, America could run a public chain and they could invite folks to come on, but it's not a decentralized chain. America can 100% control it. And public chains is a type of technology to, to reduce the transaction costs of, of coordination and reduce the transaction costs of uh, fi deploying financial technology. Uh, and when we say transaction costs, we don't just mean fees. We mean the hassle, the total hassle of getting stuff done together. Right. So, for example, if, if you have a, a, a public chain that America runs, it's not a decentralized public chain, they could invite any two restaurants in the world, any, any two companies to pay each other on this public chain. And that could be a direct point-to-point -point transaction that's not decentralized. It just occurs on the American public chain. So public chains are something that to us is obviously valuable. It's obviously kind of a new way of doing things. It's particularly associated with open source software. So if you if I start like Ryan's copy of Ethereum, I can take Uniswap, a famous Ethereum open source application, and I can put it on my chain. It's not decentralized, but it is public. And I can leverage this increasingly, this, this growing library of open source software, like Uniswap, like many other uh, applications and protocols. And so uh, a public chain is sort of just a, a new way of coordinating and deploying financial technology that's not necessarily decentralized. And for us, we, we look at that paradox and we're not worried at all about whether or not, like to us, it, this is obviously useful. The idea of public chains not working out doesn't even make sense to us. It's just a question of which, which technologies win in which forums under the public chain umbrella. Now, the other umbrella for us is decentralization. That one's sort of easier to explain. When you have a, a public chain like Ethereum that's truly decentralized, then you gain a new way for the world's governments and corporations internationally to coordinate and they, they have to all trust each other. So like a, a public chain, a, a decentralized public chain allows the world to coordinate in a new way that's highly, highly uh, uh, reliable where if, if America runs the blockchain, then whatever America says goes. But if there's a decentralized public chain, then no government in particular runs that. And so for us, this, this concept of public chains and decentralization are the two theses that we sleep very well at night. We know they're going to work. The idea of them not working is like the idea of the iPhone not being useful. It's like, Obviously, everybody wants an iPhone. It's a magic box in your pocket. Uh, right. So for us, it's just easy. So the way we think about it is we don't think about, will this technology win? We know it's going to win. It's just obvious to us. What we think about is, is Ethereum going to be the vehicle by which this technology wins? Is it going to be Solana? Is it going to be Bitcoin? And so uh, for us, we spend a lot of time on that second question, yeah. trying to understand who's going to win this broader competition that we know is gonna be of great significance to the world. So that's how we kind of cut through that paradox and, and that's how we how our kind of personal journey led to us being investors and uh, you know focusing on Ethereum because we just think Ethereum is a great uh, competitor in both the public chain and the decentralization uh, theses. Yeah, it's so interesting. It seems like we're thinking about that in many ways uh, in a very similar sort of context, this idea that the technology uh, advancing is inevitable, and yet there's a great deal of question uh, and risk around understanding which the financial vehicles are going to be for participating in it. 
Ryan, this has been an incredible conversation. I'm so glad we were able to do this to talk about your journey. Uh, in the two minutes or so we have left, I'm going to ask you a really difficult question, which is what's the short form answer of how you think this technology is going to change the world in the next three to five years in two minutes or less? Three to five years. Wow. So last cycle, last time we had all-time high prices in early 2018, there was more or less no such thing as DeFi. There are no apps, no protocols, all of the, the vernacular, the lingo we use today didn't exist. This past cycle from 2018 to late 2021, we invented all of DeFi. We invented layer two networks, which is the scaling solution that's going to take Ethereum to global ubiquity. And so what this next cycle is about, this next, you know, kind of three to five year cycle is about mass market. We, we are going to bring a mass market global payments network that's truly inexpensive uh, mass market access to yield opportunities, mass market ownership across different video games. And uh, I believe in my, my kind of personal project right now, uh, mass market crypto service economy, where there's going to be all kinds of services that people are selling on, on Craigslist, Fiverr, Etsy, you know, all, all kinds of consulting and freelance and phone a friend and, and anything conceivable that you can pay someone for over the internet that is delivered digitally, be it professional work or some kind of audiovisual experience, we're going to build that into crypto. And so this next few years journey of crypto is really about at the end of this next cycle, there will be no one in the world who can say crypto doesn't have real use cases. That's, that's our goal. Yeah, so many interesting points you make there. Uh, DeFi is something that I'm incredibly interested in myself. Uh, you know, it's very clear that there's an enormous opportunity set there. And yet, you know, in, in keeping with this core paradox, we've seen these hacks, exploits, rug pulls, fraud in the space. So much opportunity, so much risk, so much to watch in that space. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. It's really a pleasure to get to walk through your journey a bit. Of course, we've just scratched the surface here. Looking forward to having you back on Real Vision on the platform to have these conversations in even more detail, particularly about the future of Ethereum, where I know you spend a great deal of your time. Always a pleasure, Ash. Thanks for having me on the show. We'll see you again. Thanks for listening, everyone. All right, that's a wrap on Building Blocks. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto, where the crypto conversation always continues. <laughs>